Thank you very much. Thanks to, thanks to all of you for coming, and thanks to the Royal Academy for uh, arranging this and inviting me. Um, I ju I'll just jump right into it. I have uh, a lot of interest in uh, the issues that Nigel brought up, and I work on, most of the time, I work on issues that are very similar to the ones that Igor was just talking about, but I'm not going to talk about those, connection, those issues very much. Instead, I'm going to talk about uh, some thoughts I've had recently about uh, the, this general question that we've been considering of the relationship between philosophy and engineering and some possible um, new directions for collaboration between uh, philosophy and engineering. So I'll start with my conclusions. So just to let you know where I'm going, I mean, this spoils, it's, it's terrible as far as suspense goes, and spoils everything, but this is where I'm heading. I think there can be a two-way interaction uh, between philosophy and engineering, beneficial interaction. I'm sure there are other ways that there can be collaborations, but the two-way interaction I'll be looking at uh, is as follows. Now, uh, if I were to do philosophy of science properly, I would look at the history of science and try to find examples, and the history of engineering to find examples of this two-way interaction. Um, uh, to better illustrate it and, to, and just uh, as a kind of a test to see if I'm not just uh, making all this up. Uh, now, there could be, could be that there, these interactions will be novel, um, but I suspect not. Anyway, here they are. So, first of all, I think that some philosophical breakthroughs can only come about by philosophers or the people who are struggling with these conceptual questions actually attempting to design and actually building and interacting with uh, the artifacts that they build, uh, building working systems. And so I'm very, uh, I depart with a lot of uh, philosophers in this regard because a lot of academic philosophers want to draw a line in the sand and say, philosophy is an a priori inquiry uh, there's no room for empirical results and certainly no room for uh, something as empirical as building actual existing systems. There's no room for that in uh, anything that can be called philosophy. I think that's incorrect. Uh, I think uh, that's a modern um, misunderstanding of what philosophy is. I think if you just go back 100 years or maybe a little bit more, you'll have the, the view that I'm taking, the predominant view. For instance, I think Kant would be very sympathetic to the, the idea that there could be um, philosophical breakthroughs through actually um, building systems. Um, and I mentioned in my abstract uh, Vico, who thought that you can only truly understand something, something if you can build it. And I think that would also go for truly understand the philosophical issues involved if you uh, actually attempt to build it. But also, there's another way that philosophy and engineering can, can interact. And you can think of this as the other direction, not by uh, engineering helping philosophers, but by philosophy playing a role in engineering working systems. Seems a bit odd, but what I'm going to claim is that for the case of some complex systems, for instance, maybe an in artificial consciousness, uh, it might be necessary to incorporate uh, the theorist or the philosopher into the design and that might not make much sense right now, but I hope uh, to spend a few slides at the end illustrating it in possible and also giving an example or two from actual work in AI uh, where I think this is going on. 
Oh, well, I could say two more things there. So the way that the, um, the design has to take into account the philosopher or theorist is twofold itself. They have to, or they, they get to, um, take into account the effect that the theorist has on the artifacts dynamics. I'll give a concrete example of that from some work at MIT. And it also, there's the other direction. They will uh, be able to uh, take into account the effect that the system dynamics will have on the theorist or philosopher. So all this is very abstract right now. That's the disadvantage of giving you the take-home message at the outset. But I hope it'll become clearer by the time we're done. So the first direction, the way that um, you can make philosophical progress by doing engineering is, has to do with conceptual change. Philosophy is about, at least one way of understanding philosophy, is about trying to solve what are mainly conceptual problems. Um, it's, uh, the more abstract questions, well, I, I, I'm sure I don't have enough time for this, but one way to make the point clear is, you know, pe people make fun of philosophers for having struggled with very simple questions for thousands of years and not, come, and not having yet come up with an answer. For instance, the old chestnut, if a tree falls in a forest and no one is around um, to hear, does it make a noise? Um, and that, they, you, know, you criticize philosophers for still wondering about that one after all this time. Millennia have passed since that movie was first posed. But then on the other hand, um, if you put that question to a scientist, certain scientists, uh, they might scratch their head for a while, go away, write some things down on paper, and then say, well, I've worked it out for Ellen Birch, but I'm still trying to solve the general case. And that's a sign that they haven't really grasped the conceptual problem here. They've confused the conceptual problem for an empirical problem. So philosophy is about trying to resolve these conceptual problems. And there, don't get me wrong, there is value to uh, conceptual analysis, traditionally conceived, a priori inquiry. I respect all of that. I do all. Of, I do that a lot. Um, um, so that I definitely agree that not all um, limitations on our scientific understanding are a matter of just not having enough data. And it seems that, in particular, our problems in trying to understand consciousness are like that. That there seem to be conceptual problems in trying to understand what it is for something, a physical thing, to also be a conscious thing, um, that don't just, they aren't just a matter of not having enough uh, knowledge of the nervous system. Philosophers and non-philosophers alike realize that even if we knew lots and lots more about the nervous system, we would still have some fundamental puzzling questions. Um, we have a naturalist intuition that consciousness, like anything else, is at root Physical. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that probably most people here are generally physicalists and think that most every, every kind of phenomenon in the world is at least grounded in physical um, happenings. But on the other hand, we still have this problem with our notion of consciousness that, well, Dennett calls it the zombie hunch. It seems to us that uh, it's possible for there to be a creature that is physically just like you but nobody's home. There, it isn't con that creature isn't conscious. We can imagine, seems to, seems to at least some people in the field that uh, that's not inconceivable. 
um, that there could be someone who's physically identical to you and yet different with respect to experiential properties. And that's uh, those two intuitions, that naturalist intuition that it's really got to be a physical matter when it comes down to it, and yet the zombie hunch that really even if you fix the physical, you still haven't fixed, determined the experiential. Those two, that's a kind of cognitive dissonance. Um, so there's a conceptual problem there in our notion of consciousness. So one way that you might respond to this is to say, look, it's got to be that our concept of consciousness is at fault. It's a broken concept. If, if your concept of consciousness has that um, paradoxical implication, then maybe you should try to develop a new notion of consciousness. Maybe we should be looking towards conceptual change as the way to resolve this problem of uh, the conflict between our naturalistic inclination and the zombie hunch. So, how can you do this? It sounds nice. Okay, well, all we have to do is change our concept of consciousness. We want to do it in a way that we're still talking about consciousness, so we're not changing the subject. It's still a way of thinking about consciousness, but it's just a better way of thinking about consciousness. So, like, we, when we think about gold, we think about the same thing that the ancients thought about when they thought about gold, but we just have a better concept of it. We know what the essence of gold is. It's having a certain atomic number, whereas the ancients were confused. They, it didn't mean they weren't thinking about gold. They were thinking about gold, and when we think about gold, we think about the very same thing. It's just we have a better concept of it now. So what, can, we, can we do the same thing for consciousness? Can we refine our concept of consciousness? Well, that's what I'm hoping we can do. I think what we need to do but it seems unlikely that that kind of conceptual change can just come about itself through merely, merely conceptual processes. What I mean by conceptual processes, like just adding to your stock of beliefs, um, just learning a few more facts about consciousness or about the brain, or uh, having philosophical arguments. Um, it could be, but it seems if the recent history of consciousness studies and the philosophy of consciousness is any indication that these uh, discussions and, and arguments and disputes don't actually, there's no rational way to move somebody, uh, convince somebody who has the zombie hunch to not have the zombie hunch and vice versa. Dan Dennett, again, uh, does a lot of work on um, revealing this aspect of the debate to show that there just seem to be entrenched intuitions that are, don't seem to be tractable with respect to rational argumentation. And also, uh, for instance, reading journal articles about uh, consciousness. Um, is that going to be the way that we develop our uh, uh, concept of consciousness? Can it be done purely through these rational linguistic modes? Well, don't get me wrong, I think, of course, these uh, components are essential to uh, developing our understanding of anything, including consciousness, but I think they are not enough in the case of certain intractable problems, and in particular in the case of consciousness, I don't think they're enough. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do these nice things. I think they need to be supplemented with something else. I think we need to, if we're going to change our concept of consciousness so that we can make scientific sense of consciousness and understand the place of consciousness in the natural world, then we might have to have our concept of consciousness undergo what you might call a non-conceptual change, um, a non-conceptual development in our concept of consciousness. What do I mean by non-conceptual developments in consciousness? Well, the, here's some examples of how your concept might be changed non-conceptually, but it isn't really what I have in mind. 
Um, getting hit on the head, for instance, might change what you think or what you think you think about consciousness or undergoing neurosurgery or maybe taking certain kinds of drugs, psychoactive drugs. Yeah, maybe you'll have an aha experience if you do some of those things. That's not what I mean. I mean um, uh, changes to your concept that can't be uh, reproduced, say, by produce, producing a philosophical argument or can't be... Um, Guaranteed, uh, if, if you give someone a piece of text, then they'll say, oh yes, and they'll have the same conceptual change as well. But nevertheless, unlike those bad examples I just gave, are still rational changes that are justified, and in particular, are based on the experience of the subject matter. So, unlike those bad examples I gave, where your, the change in your conceptual state is just kind of, uh, it's non-conceptual, but it's uh, it's uh, random, it's not justified in any way. I'm looking for ways that we can uh, change our concept um, and yet have it be a change that tracks reality in some way, even if it can't be su summarized in some text or even if it can't be transmitted through text. Say, You can't give somebody a piece of text that will make them have the same set of concepts you do. Now, this might sound puzzling, it might sound impossible, but I think it's actually much more commonplace than... Um, you might first imagine, for instance, skills are that way. Skills aren't linguistically transmissible, um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. First, why might we think concepts are like skills? Well, for instance, Wittgenstein um, had the idea that, for instance, looking at the duck rabbit image, what underlie it, or the Necker cube, as we saw in the end of uh, Igor's talk, what Wittgenstein thought that what underlies being able to move between the different ways of seeing the Necker cube or seeing the duck rabbit image is a mastery of a technique. So if seeing something in a new way and being able to see how it's the very same thing as the thing you saw in the old way, if being, if being able to do that is the mastery of a technique, then that's what we need in order to understand consciousness. In order to be able to see how a thing that's appreciable from the experiential perspective is also the very same thing that's understandable from the physical perspective. Um, in order to move seamlessly between those two viewpoints, if that's a technique, then what we're looking for is a skill. What, what I want, uh, what I'm looking for, is that capacity. I want to have that, a mastery of that technique. So, in that sense, what I'm looking for is, uh, well, the acquisition of the, of the new concept of consciousness is going to be like acquiring a skill. And so that's exactly the kind of thing I was looking for because, um, of course, a skill is exactly the kind of thing that you can't transmit through text. I can't give you a piece of text and give you the ability, give you that technique, give you the ability to ride a bicycle. I can't give you a piece of text and it alone um, will um, uh, yeah, give you that skill. Uh, we can't argue our way to giving you that skill. Rather, it's something you have to experience yourself. You have to experience the phenomenon. Now, it might assist you. It might, uh, for instance, uh, some symbolic linguistic information helped me learn to juggle. Now, it wasn't sufficient for me to acquire that skill, but it, it's certain I tried to learn, acquire the skill without that symbolic linguistic information, and I wasn't doing very well. But when somebody helped me through language to draw attention to certain aspects of my experience, then I was able to learn to juggle, well, in my own feeble way, um, quite quickly. So I'm not saying, again, that there's no role for the linguistic, the, um, the journal articles, etc. I'm just saying we need something else. 
<clears throat> so that's one important part of this, of this view that I'm calling interactive empiricism. Uh, but it would just be um, nothing new if I didn't say a little bit more about what this kind of experience is, because it's an old idea, the idea of empiricism, that all your, that all your ideas must be found, grounded in sense experience. I'm, I'm saying something more than that. I'm not just saying we should make sure that all our scientific notions like consciousness are grounded in sense experience. It's a particular kind of experience that I'm talking about. That's what the interactive is saying there. It has to be some kind of interaction, I'm saying. One has to, in order to have the kind of skill that will solve our problem, you have to have some mastery, some understanding of how your experiences of the subject matter, in this case consciousness, your experiences of, about experience, will change in the light of uh, your different ways of intervening in that subject matter. So it's, uh, it's going to be crucial here. Um, well, like riding a bicycle isn't just a passive reception of input, like the empiric traditional empiricists uh, were thinking when they talked about grounding um, ideas and experience. It's, it, it's interactive. It's, you understand, you, you acquire the skill because you experience this feedback in response to this kind of motion, and, and it's much more dynamic and coupled rather than just a one-way input from the world to your ideas. To make that a little more clear, I just want to draw attention to the fact that cognitive science seems to be, at least some movements in cognitive science, are finding that interaction is essential to understanding um, cognition. So interaction seems to be essential to perception on some views. We already heard um, O'Regan and Noe's theory mentioned by Mark Bishop earlier. Um, for them, clearly, you can only be perceiving the world if you have some capacity to interact with it, or if you're actually interacting with it. Um, uh, consciousness in general is thought to involve action on views like Susan Hurley's um, view. Uh, cognition in general is thought to involve interaction, uh, essentially, on some views like Mark Bickard's view. Um, and maybe uh, most well, it's a nice illustration of a concrete way in which interaction is crucial to uh, certain kinds of cognition. In this case, visual development is the very um, rather old study by Held and Hein, but it's, uh, um, if you haven't um, come across it before, I think it's quite striking. Um, in this uh, apparatus here, you have kittens who haven't yet fully developed their um, visual system. So neonate kittens. Um, and the apparatus is such that the kitten on the right is touching the ground and is able to move around uh, freely, relatively freely. And um, yet the kit kitten on the left is suspended in a, um, in, uh, some, it is suspended in a way that um, that the kitten's movements will not uh, enable it, will not change its position in the world at all. So the kitten on the right uh, has uh, a very um, natural interdependence between its actions and the input that it visual input that it receives. The kitten on the left, there's no correlation between its movements, its muscle movements, and the visual input it receives, because the visual input it receives is completely determined by the kitten on the right. No matter what the kitten on the left does with its uh, limbs, that won't affect generally. Uh, it's it's the input that it receives, and so what you end up uh, what you find out is that after the developmental period is over, after you 
subject these four kittens to this experiment, uh, is that the kitten on the right has more or less normal vision and the kitten on the left is more or less blind. And this shows that that interaction, having the right kind of interaction, is crucial to certain kinds of, of development. Well, maybe we're not so different. It's, it's an analogy here, I realize, but maybe we're not so different from uh, um, kittens in terms of their visual, visual development and our conceptual development. Maybe conceptual development, uh, this is a general cognitive principle that governs our uh, conceptual development as well, and we can only truly make proper developments in our concepts, for instance, our concept of consciousness, if we're able to intervene on a subject matter and then get uh, experiences back that um, are related naturally to uh, those interventions. In this case, though, the interventions will be with the conscious subject or the phenomenon of consciousness itself. <coughs> so the idea here is that, look, if a science of human cognition, if you have a, a, a general science of human cognition, then it should apply to particular cognizers. In particular, it should apply to cognitive scientists. And if your general cognitive science says that uh, cognition is inherently interactive, then it should also be that doing cognitive science should, might necessarily involve, and for instance, philosophical conceptual development might need to be essentially an interactive, um, well, inter it might be interactive, might need to be an activity. Now, how does it, this is where I think engineering comes in, because I think the kind of interaction that's relevant to understanding consciousness, cognitive systems, artificial consciousness, etc., is uh, the design and construction of actual working systems. Only those kinds of uh, interactions um, will be the kind that will allow this conceptual development. Well, I don't need to be so. Um, <clears throat> I don't need to be so restrictive here. I, I'm not, I don't want to rule out there might be other kinds of interaction that could uh, give assist conceptual change with respect to consciousness. For instance, there might be maybe we, if we. Um, not only when we, we're interacting with each other or interacting with subjects in the experimental laboratory, if, if we not only were interacting with them in a more or less normal way, if we also had access to uh, real-time scans of their brain while we were interacting with them and could somehow you know, look at both at the same time, who knows? Maybe that would also be a way of um, uh, being able to develop our concept of consciousness. Um, but I think um, that's a much more limited idea a much less plausible idea than the engineering-based um, approach I'm suggesting here. Compare trying to understand, say, how a computer works in a similar way. That is, while you're interacting with the computer, um, you have an oscilloscope, and you can see what's going on at the lowest level hardware level uh, of the computer while you're typing into Microsoft Word or something. Okay, in theory, maybe you'll get some great insights, but I think it's, it's just too much of a a jump to try to expect you, for you to see some interesting correlations or, you know, you need, there needs to be a step-by-step -step structured um, approach here that will allow this interaction to actually have an effect on our, conce on our concept of consciousness. So that's why I think um, designing and building cognitive systems um, is more the kind of interaction that's going to yield the right kind of conceptual change. Um, and uh, that's yeah, that, that's why I think um, that's one way that I think engineering comes in. Now, since I'm running out of time, I'll skip over this aside about how this connects to the Mary problem. 
um, because most of you probably haven't heard of the Mary problem, and I'd have to spend time um, introducing it. For those who do know about the knowledge argument of Frank Jackson, I'll just say, if you realize that science and cognitive science are essentially um, interactive activities that involve experiencing the world, then the whole premise of Jackson's argument is revealed to be contradictory. Jackson said, um, imagine someone who uh, knows everything science has to, know, has to say about uh, color vision but has never seen red, and you realize right away that that's a contradiction, that um, if Mary really did know everything that science um, had, um, knows about color vision, then Mary would have to have all the experiences um, that, uh, all, that science, scientists have about color vision. So he thought of science as being what you can write down on a piece of paper, and Mary could read all the all the journal articles about color vision, but that's not what science is. Science isn't only that stuff, is, is the point I'm trying to make. Uh, science also involves this engineering aspect, this building and creating systems, this interacting with the subject matter, and that's why um, uh, Mary, the Mary thought experiment is, uh, um, has, a, is, has a contradictory premise. So sorry for those of you who um, don't know anything about the Mary problem. Um, but we can talk about that later if you want. It's an interesting uh, argument. Um, so just a few slides then on the other direction, um, the other way in which philosophy and engineering um, might collaborate in new ways. Um, it's just the observation that really we are part of the systems we build. And just as interaction can have a salutary effect on the philosopher, which I've just been talking about, it might give the philosopher some beneficial conceptual change. There's the other direction as well. It could be that since the philosopher is interacting with the system that's being built, the philosopher might, or the theorist, might be a crucial component in the dynamics, uh, developmental dynamics of that system. Um, and I don't have to leave it as an abstract point because there are some people who are actually exploiting this in concrete work in robotics. Um, so here's a question, provocative question. What's the biggest, what is the biggest engineering advance in artificial intelligence in the last 20 years? And uh, my provocative answer is, I'm not going to let you answer, I'll just give you my answer. My provocative answer is Kismet's eyebrows. I think putting eyebrows on Kismet was one of the biggest, both technological and conceptual advances in AI in the last 20 years. Now that seems a bit crazy, but Here's why I think that's important. Um, Kismet needed to learn how to track visual objects. It could only do that if the stimuli were appropriate. That is, if they were moving at a certain speed, within a range of speeds, um, at a certain distance, so it could, fix, could focus on it, etc. Um, you could try to ensure that uh, the trainer did that by a number of means, but a very efficient way of getting the trainer to, who's a person, to uh, keep the um, system within a particular part of the face space is to put eyebrows on Kismet and maybe put it, do a little bit more, like have Kismet jump back. Um, when, the, when the state variable moves into, out of a particular region of space, kiz, Kismet jumps back and the eyebrows go up. And you don't have to train the trainer 
as to what to do in that situation. You don't have to give them instructions. You don't have to say, this is like, you have them consult a rule book or anything. They will just naturally, because they're built to respond to startlement in a particular way, they will interpret that as startlement. Whether, you know, the fact that kismet is not an experiencing creature is irrelevant. The fact is kismet behaves like an experiencing creature and therefore the trainer will respond unreflectively in the appropriate way. That is, the trainer will pull back, will move the, the stimulus back into a proper part of the space, space and, um, and uh, tracking learning will continue. So um, that's a very efficient way to exploit that dynamical relationship between Kismet and the trainer in order to get Kismet to learn in, a, um, in, in the proper way. So that's the way in which the trainer, the theorist, the philosopher even can be in the loop, be part of the system. Now these two directions can be combined, I think. If we're part of the system, then not only can, uh, can we have a beneficial causal effect on the robot's performance, but as we saw in the first part of the talk, vice versa, the robot, interacting with the robot can has a, have a beneficial, beneficial effect on us by, say, prompting conceptual change. So maybe we're going about AI the wrong way. Instead of trying to design an AI or machine consciousness in one step, why don't we instead see it as a dynamical developmental process? So we design a system S1 in such a way that it will prompt some kind of conceptual changes in us, and those conceptual changes will allow us to design another system S2, um, and S2 will be such that it will prompt further changes in, in us. So we should see ourselves in a dynamical, in a dialectical relationship with the systems we build and try to get on that trajectory rather than trying to get to the end point all in one go. So if we think about um, this development, this design trajectory, maybe we'll um, and try to reason about it and maybe theorize about it and apply some of the techniques of engineering to that trajectory, maybe we'll um, be able to get further than we've done uh, that we've been able to so far. Um, now, Frank Herbert, I think, was prescient. Uh, he wrote uh, in this, about, uh, on this issue in the 60s, he wrote a novel about uh, people attempting to create machine consciousness. And in his book, um, the people were carefully engineered. They were clones. They were put in a carefully engineered technological environment. There were certain kinds of computing technologies. There was a, they were in a spaceship. There was neural wetware available. And then these people in that situation were manipulated and given certain kinds of uh, motivations. In particular, they were going to die uh, if they didn't uh, create a machine consciousness. And it was hoped that if you just put the, those ingredients together, then the people in that situation would come up with a solution. Or maybe they'd come up with the next stage of the solution, then you start again and have the next group start with the, with the next stage that you'd, you had developed. So I think it's interesting that a science fiction author um, uh, anticipated or uh, speculated that um, this kind of engineering, uh, the relationship between the theorist and the uh, design system might be a good way to go. Um, and what was interesting is that a crucial part of the project um, was that the challenges that the uh, characters in this novel faced were, um, were such that they would force these characters to think about what they meant by consciousness. So they forced them to 
basically engage in philosophy and think, think of, come up with a definition of consciousness. And they could only see what consciousness is if they were in that situation. The people who were designing this experiment didn't know what consciousness was. They were hoping that these subjects would figure out what consciousness was just by being uh, forced to. Um, so in my last slide, um, you know, that's all speculation. That's a science fiction novel. But maybe really um, it isn't so far off from what we could be doing now. And I don't just mean Kismet, although I think that's a good example. Um, obviously, I, I, I praised it as being an, uh, an, a substantial development. But also, I think, in uh, work that's going on right now in searching for creative technologies, uh, environments that facilitate creative um, insight, uh, document systems that facilitate creative insight, uh, even uh, brainwave induction devices, if, if you, uh, certain people think that uh, the brain is at its most creative when uh, there's certain kinds of um, neural activity going on, so if you can induce people into that um, neural state, um, then maybe they'll be more likely to have a creative insight. These kinds of uh, technologies, if they were um, applied to the particular case of developing um, AI systems, might be um, a way to go. And then lastly, I'll just mention some of my own work um, <coughs> that um, is not a million miles off from uh, the kind of work um, Igor's doing. It also um, involves um, the notion of a depiction, but a different kind of notion, but I can't, I can't really explain the difference. But uh, the term here that I use is synthetic phenomenology. It's by interacting with a robot uh, that can, uh, can do some interesting stuff. That, that by, by interacting with that robot, I develop an understanding of its capacities and I can use that understanding I have, that skill I have in anticipating what it's going to do, or that skill that I have in interacting with it, I can use that capacity to specify the experiential states that it, it models. Like, sorry, I can't go into more detail than that, but it's another example of how a skill that you can acquire by interacting with your own artifacts might be uh, useful in making some progress on understanding consciousness. Thank you.